Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Today is the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, but did you know it was originally called the Feast of Our Lady of Victory? All because of the Battle of Lepanto. Hear Bishop break it down on this episode. It involves the legendary Don Juan leading troops and more than 400 warships, including rowing vessels. It was pretty epic. I'd love to see a movie about the Battle of Lepanto. I think I'd, I'd talk to Mel Gibson or somebody. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it was huge. I mean, I think it might have been the largest naval battle ever. Then it's on to a lesser-known saint whose feast day we celebrate this week. He happens to be the patron saint of pharmacists. And the show wraps up with listeners' submitted questions on returning to Mass, holy water, and Bishop's favorite Bible translation. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you for being here again, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. I'm going to be talking a little bit about Our Lady of the Rosary and the rosary that you use most frequently. How old is it? Oh, my heavens. I have, well, let me tell you this. I have a rosary in my car. I have a rosary at my bed. I have a rosary in my pocket. Uh Uh, So I have different ones. One is the one that my mom prayed. Oh, yeah. Which is a lot means a lot to me. Obviously, another is the ro- a rosary that Pope Saint John Paul II gave me. Uh-huh. I also have rosaries that I received from Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. But and I I do use those. Another was a um, wonderful elderly Italian lady who just died a few months ago, and I I put that in my car to remember her. And I uh, she was from back home. Wonderful woman who, of faith who prayed for me all the time. So mm. I kind of use that and remember her. So I, I don't know if I could say a favorite though. <laughs> yeah. Do, what do you think is the oldest? Oh, the oldest. I'm the, sorry. The one from your mom? Probably the one from my mom. And it was actually a rosary that I had given to my mom as a okay. gift. And that, yeah, that'd be the oldest one. Where did you get it? I bought it in Italy when I was okay. a student as a seminarian. Yeah. And then had it blessed by the Pope probably? Probably. Uh-huh. I'm sure I did. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, do you have a a prayer to start us with today? Well, since this is the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, should we pray the rosary? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) We probably don't have time. Why don't we just, of course, why don't we just pray the Hail Mary today? Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of the Holy Rosary, pray for us. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Now, do you know why I said Our Lady of Victory? Does it have to do with the Victory Knoll sisters? Well, it does, but actually today, October 7th, the Feast of the Rosary had previously been the Feast of Our Lady of Victory. Oh, okay. You didn't know that. I did not. I always love to give you some extra <laughs> extra Catholic trivia. Yeah, it might come in handy. Jeopardy, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, the... Um, you know, the title was changed. It was originally after the, the naval victory at Lepanto, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And the Pope at that time was St. Pius V. He attributed to the victory to the, Blessed, to the Blessed Mother. So he established this feast of Our Lady of Victory. But it was only 
you know, a few years after that, that another pope changed the title from Feast of Our Lady of Victory to the Feast of the Holy Rosary. And it was called the Feast of the Holy Rosary for, I think, some centuries, and now it's called the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. Okay. And uh, it's the day, October 7th, was the day in which the, the coalition of Christian nations formed what's called the Holy League and defeated the Ottoman Turk Navy at the Battle of Lepanto. That was in the year 1571. And this was a really important victory because the Ottoman Turks, who were Muslim, were expanding. They had this really powerful navy, and they were moving to west. So they were conquering, you know, going all the way, trying to go all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So there was a real possibility that Italy would be invaded, that Spain would be invaded. So, and they had this awesome naval power in the Eastern Mediterranean. So they, they wanted to move west. And the Pope himself, Pius V, who's a saint, established this or organized a coalition of various forces from different Christian kingdoms like Spain would be, you know, they were very, they were strong with naval power. And the Venetians and Sicily had, so he brought these these different um, together in a coalition and they called it the Holy League. And they set sail from Sicily and met the Ottoman naval fleet at the Battle of Lepanto. And Pope Pius V called for all of Europe to pray the rosary for victory. And they had hours of fighting. You had these, uh, these two navies fighting each other. And ultimately, the Christian force was victorious. That's the origin, actually, of today's feast, because so many were praying the rosary. I'd love to see a movie about the Battle of Lepanto. I think I, I might talk to Mel Gibson or somebody. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it was huge. I mean, I think it might have been the largest naval battle ever. Huh. I, I mean, it was, if you look at the history of naval warfare, it was definitely the last where they had rowing vessels. You know, they, okay. um, you know you're talking 1500s, but there were more than... 400 warships involved in this battle. So wow. you can just imagine. And it was really important that it stopped the Ottoman military expansion. You know, they were successful, the Ottomans, you know, in attacking and taking over various places in, in northern Africa along the Mediterranean. They were really, really powerful. Um, the Christian fleet was under the command of the famous Don Juan of Austria. And then he had a deputy who's also famous, Marc Antonio Colonna. And uh, if you like history, and you know I love history, I, <laughs> you know, I don't know a lot about naval warfare. Uh -huh. uh, I would have to learn. I just can't imagine having that many ships, you know, and they must have been cl close. And it was in the Gulf of Patras, which is right, uh, port of in Greece, that this Battle of Lepanto took place. One of the things I always found interesting, the Turks had, the Ottoman Turks had thousands of Christian slaves on their, on their ships mm. who all were rescued also. Oh, wow. Which is interesting. About 7,500 
Christians died, naval personnel died in the battle, mm -hmm. but there were about 30,000 Turks who died. Um, hmm. So it was a real significant defeat. It was the t Ottoman Turks, they, they were not only very strong, they, they weren't used to defeats. So this was, um, this was very significant. So whenever something like this happens and we attribute a miraculous outcome or at least a favorable outcome to a prayer to a specific saint or this, in this case, the prayer of the rosary, how do we know that it was that instrument that is responsible, that saint's prayers or that rosary's prayers, and not just God intervening? Yeah. I mean, really, the, it, there's no requirement to believe mm -hmm. this, you know, that it was through the prayer of the rosary that uh, the Christians were victorious. It's a pious belief. We could, we're free to believe it or not. Okay. You know, just because the Pope established the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, well, first Our Lady of Victory, then Our Lady of the Rosary, that's why October 7th was chosen. Uh -huh. But we could celebrate today, October 7th, as the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, without the Battle of Lepanto. Sure, sure. But that's why this date was chosen. Uh -huh. This was the date of the battle. The rosary itself is, I guess, maybe a relatively newer prayer for the church. I mean, this isn't something that we got from the time of Jesus. Right, right. Correct. I mean, there's the story that it really began in the 12th, 13th century with, with St. Dominic. Mm -hmm. Some question the historicity of that. But we do know 13th century, there was the praying of the rosary. It mm -hmm. kind of developed on how the prayers were said and, and all that, the decades, et cetera. But that would be its its earliest origin. Yeah. Okay. And it's really, it's a, as John Paul said, it's a compendium of the gospel. It's one of the most popular devotions that we have. Beautiful prayer where we kind of are praying, you know, at the School of Mary, mm -hmm. uh, who is our you know, exemplar of prayer and meditation and we reflect on the mysteries of Christ. So it's a very Christocentric prayer beloved by many Catholics. So that's why today is really a special day, uh, Our Lady of the Rosary. I just encourage all of us to, to if, and, and those who are listening who perhaps maybe not, don't even know how to pray the rosary, mm -hmm. I highly recommend, you know, check it out, pray it while you're, going for a walk. You can pray it when you're in your car. You can pray it while you're lying down in bed. You can pray it in church before the Blessed Sacrament. You pray it anywhere. It's just a wonderful way to, um, to meditate on the mysteries of our Lord with, in a sense, with, with Mary, mm -hmm. you know? All right. And yeah, if somebody doesn't know how to pray a rosary, I'm sure there's plenty of people at the church that would be happy to to give you a rosary and teach you how to pray it. But also there's all kinds of resources online too. If you just yes. how to pray a rosary, I'm sure you'd get a million hits. Right, right. So happy feast of the Holy Rosary today, everybody. Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. Yes, thank you. You also mentioned uh, another saint, Saint John Leonardi. Yes. Um, Kyle, tell me everything that you know about St. John Leonardi. Well, I, I know several things. One, his name was John. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, Giovanni. 
Dang, didn't even get that one <laughs> he right. He was Italian. <laughs> of course. Uh, I, I don't know that I've heard about yeah. St. John Leonardi. Well, you know what? I, I thought it, you know, it's good because sometimes, even though he's on the universal calendar, so, so it's an optional memorial okay. in, throughout the world. Uh-huh. But there are some of these saints who are on the universal calendar that the average Catholic probably never heard of or, or just heard the name. Uh-huh. So it's nice that on Redeemer Radio, we can talk a little bit about these kind of unknown saints that, that aren't as popular. I mean, everybody knows St. Francis, right. St. Therese, but sometimes you see these names on the calendar or the priest may choose, to, if it's an optional memorial, he doesn't have to celebrate that mass on that day, but but he might choose to, it's an option. So on October 9th, you know, some of the priests are probably celebrating the mass with the prayers with St. John Leonardi. But I, I think um, just a little bit about him. I don't want to spend a lot of time. He founded a religious order called the Clerks Regular of the Mother of God. Hmm. And they really, I don't know that they're in the United States, which is maybe one reason why he's not so well known here. But he is the patron saint of pharmacists. So okay. any pharmacists who are listening today, October 9th, remember uh, your your patron. And, or anybody uh, who's filling a prescription, you can pray for your pharmacist and ask yeah. St. John Leonardi. And give them a holy them. card of St. John Leonardi. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a, a pharmacist, a certified pharmacist in Lucca, Italy, the city huh. of Lucca. And it was after 10 years of study as a pharmacist that he went to the seminary. He was ordained in the year 1572. So this is the time of the Counter-Reformation. And so, you know, the Council of Trent had taken place. So the reforms of the Council of Trent, which which were really important. And we see some of these great saints at that time. Saints like Charles Borromeo, Ignatius Loyola, Philip Neri. God blessed us at a time of great stress, the division of the Protestant Reformation with these great saints of the Mm Counter-Reformation. Well, Father John Leonardi was one of them. And he founded this new congregation of priests. They were first called the Lucca Fathers because it's the city of Lucca, but eventually they were called the Clerks Regular of the Mother of God. And they were involved with really the reforms of the Council of Trent. They were working to convert sinners, to restore church discipline. Father Leonardi came then to Rome. He became friends with St. Philip Neri. It's really great to see how these saints got to know each other. And really, St. Philip Neri was his spiritual director then. Well, maybe that's why he's That's why he's a saint, yeah, having St. Philip Neri. I think probably what he's most famous for, besides the founding of this religious order, this religious institute, was he also founded the Seminary of the Propagation of the Faith Hmm. in Rome. That's what called Propaganda Fide, for the formation of missionary priests. Okay. Okay, so that was back in 1603. So we've all heard of the Society for the Propagation of the Faith. Well, and that's one of the congregations at the Vatican. 
now we call it the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. So it's still one of the major congregations of the Roman Curia. When you say congregation, is this a religious order? No, no. Congregation is an office of the Vatican. Okay. Yeah, like the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Congregation okay. for Religious, okay. Congregation for Catholic Education. These are all the main offices. We okay. call them dicasteries of the Roman Curia. So they help the Pope in the universal governance of the church, the governance of the universal church. So this one congregation for the uh, evangelization of peoples mm -hmm. is especially to support the missions, missionary countries, especially areas where the church is very young, where the gospel has only recently been planted there. You know, the United States at the beginning, we were part of that. So. Sure. It's called the Propagation of the Faith, and St. John Leonardi started the college or seminary there for the training of priests who would go off to the missions. So that's how I first heard of him. Another um, thing about St. John Leonardi that I think is uh, relevant today is there was a, a plague, an uh, epidemic of the flu in Rome in uh, 1609, and he was ministering to the sick and the suffering during that plague, and he caught the virus. He caught the flu and, and died. Hmm. So he's another saint we can ask for whose intercession we can ask during this pandemic, right. uh, St. John Leonardi. So, well, I feel like for two reasons. One, because he died from a plague and for two because he was a pharmacist yes, <laughs> so yes maybe we, help yeah. with a cure right right both we can ask him to help with the vaccine yeah so anyhow we asked saint john leonardi to to pray for us and again everybody his uh his feast is october 9th okay well good i, I always good to add another saint to my list of people that can pray for me yes how many canonized saints? Do we have any idea how many there are? I don't I was, know. I was the Roman say. Martyrology is the the book that has all the uh, the canonized saints of the church. But I mean, there's thousands. I'd, I'd have to look that up. What percentage do you think you are at least somewhat aware of? Oh, I, I'd say a small percentage. <laughs> when you think of all of them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would be familiar with those on the the Roman calendar, the calendar, yeah. the, the, the liturgical yeah. calendar. But those are, and that's the universal calendar. When you think about it, it's a small number of the total number. Right. Yeah. Would that be less than 365? Because there's not Yeah, because it's not for every day. day. Although there's some but days some, where you have two or three, right. like optional memorials. But yeah, on the universal calendar, I bet there's about 100. Although if you have those who have companions, then you <laughs> get- 77 companions yeah, yeah, then or whatever. you get higher, right, right. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, feel free to stop on over to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, where you can also find past episodes of the show, share them with your friends, or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got questions about missing mass during a dispensation, diluting holy water, Adam and Eve, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. Here with our bishop, I'll ask the questions that you've submitted. Artist Smith asked, if someone has been going to Mass weekly since Mass restarted due to COVID and would happen to miss one, is that person still dispensed from attending Mass at this time? In other words, if we feel we don't need the dispensation because we are healthy and willing to do other public things, is missing Mass a sin? That's a good question, Artis. Um, I first of all, I think it's wonderful that people have have started, you know, attending, returning to Sunday mass attendance since mass uh, public liturgies were resumed, even though they're dispensed. And the reason for the dispensation, everybody knows, is because we have a lot of people who are elderly or we have people who are caring for the elderly or living with the elderly. So for their protection, we had this dispensation. But people in other situations, I hope they're going to Mass on Sunday. But because there is a dispensation, that means one is not obliged to go under the penalty of sin. So even in the case of one who's been going to Sunday Mass weekly in these past couple months and missed one, that would not be a sin because the dispensation is still in effect. And uh, the Indiana bishops, we decided to do this jointly, and we'll be talking about, I mean, we've said that the dispensation will remain in effect until November 1st. So what you're saying is the dispensation is not conditional. It's not dispensed if you need it, but if you are able to attend, then it's not dispensed. It's just blanketly dispense from your obligation. Right, right. What about somebody who's at home and says, uh, this is a lot easier to just watch it on TV or they're not really missing much by not going to mass. What is their obligation to, uh, I guess, participating in some way or another? And then once the dispensation is lifted, how do we encourage those people to, to return? Well, that's the danger of the dispensation. Of course, if someone develops that kind of an attitude, you know, about as if Mass is not that important or Sunday Mass is kind of an optional thing, that's the danger mm-hmm. that that mentality can creep in. So we're going to have to do a good job of really teaching people the importance, again, of the Sunday Mass obligation and the centrality of the Eucharist in our lives as Catholics that it's not the same to watch it on TV. Mm-hmm. If one is is healthy and able, one is obliged to go to mass on Sunday when the in normal circumstances, mm-hmm. which, you know, could be after November 1st. I mean, that's our plan right now is that uh, the obligation is restored, the dispensation is no longer granted after November 1st. And what is the process for determining when we would lift that dispensation or when you would, well, not, not yeah. we, <laughs> nothing yeah. to do with it. Well, it's within the authority of each bishop. Uh-huh. Um, you know, according to canon law, only the bishop has the authority to make that dispensation for a whole diocese. Um, okay. I assume the Pope could do it for the, the Pope entire could, world. Because he has or, universal or, jurisdiction, okay. yeah. but he hasn't. He's mm-hmm. obviously the diocese of Rome 
they've had the dispensation, mm-hmm. and he's the bishop of Rome. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's left, and each bishop, you know, has to prayerfully discern, mm-hmm. check with the local health authorities, prayerfully discern. Now, what we've done here is the bishops of Indiana. We've kind of jointly discussed this and came to a common decision for mm-hmm. our dioceses. So that's interesting. So that's another way. We don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Each bishop is is uh, responsible for his own diocese and has authority as his own diocese. But it was kind of a, I think, a good thing that we did this as a group because our diocese border each other. Right. You know, right. it's kind of good that we have a common policy on this. And so do you do that in person, over the phone, uh, video conferencing meetings? Or? Yeah, we've been doing our conversations Email. since the pandemic began have not been in person. So mm-hmm. we've done either a conference call or a Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. How long do those last? Usually an hour or so. Okay. Yeah. Depends on the agenda. Is there much debate? Or is no, a lot like... of discussion. I wouldn't call it debate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I feel like you've talked about this before, but maybe it's worth revisiting. Someone asked, my nephew has invited me to attend his wedding to another man. I knew this was coming, but I'm still feeling torn. Should I attend? You know, there's... There's something incompatible, um, you know, with our faith that, you know, we know the truth about marriage. It's a union of a husband and a wife, uh, a man and a woman. And you don't want to show support for something that's incompatible Mm -hmm. with that truth. So you have to really consider that, okay, by attending, am I giving scandal? Am I are people going to think that I support this? Mm-hmm. Now, this can be really difficult when you're dealing with close family or friends. I think it's good to seek the advice of one's pastor, spiritual director. If there's another way that you can show your love to that person without attending the ceremony. You know, there's no hard and fast rule on it, but you know, it's 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 agonizing for some people. Mm-hmm. I know good, strong, practicing Catholics who've who uh, have not attended, and I know others, good, strong Catholics, who who have attended, but they made it known that they really don't support it. But mm-hmm. so it is. Uh, so I, I appreciate the the question. Uh, you really have to look into your conscience and and pray about it too. Because ultimately, we want to love that individual. We want to show them that we love them and support them. Maybe in, in other, we support other things that they, they choose to do. But I guess the question is, how do we do that best? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's hard. I know people want an a easy answer, but it's very, very hard. Right. Uh, I, I, I obviously would feel extremely uncomfortable myself mm-hmm. uh, and I think it would be scandalous as a bishop sure you know I would not uh, attend all right another listener asked if someone gets holy water from church and uses most of it then adds water to it is it still holy water I don't know that anyone ever asked me that question <laughs> before as long as you don't put more regular water in okay in other words it i guess a better way to say is you can't dilute it you know too much so let's say you're running low and you want to put a little water in that's fine but it should only be no more than than uh 
no more than the actual the quantity that's there. So as long when as you're you pouring have, the extra water in. So as long as you have fifty percent holy water, then yes. it's holy water. Right. But once it becomes forty nine percent holy water, then what is it? Is it just water? Then it loses its its blessing. Okay. Now it's an interesting question. And then I, it's okay to dump down a drain, or right? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Now it's an interesting question because I don't see this anywhere in canon law. This was kind of the the norm, and I guess it still applies in the which you could find in the old Roman ritual before okay. the Second Vatican Council, when it had rules for administering baptism. So it looked at the baptismal water, mm-hmm. basically said that. If you added water, it couldn't exceed the original quantity of water. So, so I think that's still in effect because I've never seen anything different. Okay. Any other ruling? Are there? Rule- I've never done it to be honest. I always just go get, or I bless the water. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to you, go. You I don't have to go to the church water. to get it. I can bless it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I've never had to add. Um, yeah. Are there rules on what kind of water can be blessed? I, I'm imagining. Is there also a limit to? the size of something like could you bless a lake or a pond or a swimming pool and do a baptize baptism in a swimming pool like what are well what are the limitations on that you can't not in the sense of a that it would become holy water i mean you could do a, a general blessing you know let's say i would go to a lake and pray that you know god would protect everyone who would be boating or swimming in that uh-huh. lake that kind of a blessing but no, you can't make a whole lake holy water. That would not be. Uh, what about the the Jordan River? Would we kind of say Jesus was baptized in it? That, right, that has to be he holy sanctified water, right? it. Yeah, <laughs> by being baptized, he sanctified the waters of the Jordan. But that water has long ago flown. I mean, <laughs> it's been diluted over fifty percent. Yes, 50%. it's been diluted. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, someone asked, is La Basilica de Guadalupe in Mexico City the co-cathedral of Mexico City? No. No, there's only one cathedral in Mexico City, the Metropolitan Cathedral downtown. Uh It's the Cathedral of the Assumption. And that's the... That's the... uh, What's that? Have you been there? Yes. You know, it was... um, it was sinking. I don't know if you remember seeing that in the news. This, I mean, it's a very old cathedral that was took centuries. It has all different kinds of architectural styles because yeah. it took a couple centuries to finish. But I think the soil that it was built on was soft or something because it started to sink. Huh. So a couple of decades ago, I saw it all in scaffolding, and they were trying. I think they have shored up the foundations but it really looked like it was going to collapse because it started to to sink the basilica of our lady guadalupe is on the outskirts of mexico city mm-hmm. whereas the the metropolitan cathedrals in the center of the city and the basilica of our lady of guadalupe is a national shrine but it is not a cathedral it's not a co-cathedral it's a national shrine as you know it houses the cloak the tilma of St. Juan Diego that has the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And they built the first shrine there pretty early on after the apparition. So we have the two churches. One, The, the one that's there now is a shrine from the uh, early 1700s, and then they built the new, more modern, very large basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe not too far from it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a big pilgrimage site. You know, millions of people visit there every year. But yeah, it's not a cathedral. Okay. 
One thing I like about I, I've been to both the the cathedral and the shrine. One thing I like about a lot of Mexico and Central Latin America is their Catholic churches are just right downtown, and there's almost always uh, right across the street from it a big open park, Parque yeah. Central. Mm-hmm. You can almost always find the Catholic church right there in Parque Central, right. and then the businesses kind of around that little park area. And it's just such a nice thing to just have like the center of the city. There's your Catholic church and a gathering place yeah. for people. Yeah. All through Latin America and even in Southwest U.S., you know, you see that on the main square, the main piazza would be the, the Catholic church, beautiful. And usually the main government building would be on that square right. as well. So. Yeah, that's really, yeah, I love that, yeah. And the beautiful uh, colonial architecture, uh-huh. yeah. I had planned on, I was coming back from Central America and kind of busting my way through Mexico. And I'd planned on like a day, maybe two in Mexico City. I'm not a big fan of big cities. Oh, okay. And s- ended up spending a week there. Loved really? it. It was so great. Did you visit Holy Family Church with St. Miguel Pro's relics? I don't remember. That's in. That's also in downtown. I had mass there hmm. when I was there once. Um, or blessing Miguel Pro. He hasn't been canonized yet. Okay. It's the Church of La Sagrada Familia in Mexico City. I can't remember where exactly it is, but so I. Yeah, that's uh, uh, another special place when you go back again, Kyle. Okay. Another question from Lillian Brumbaugh, who wrote, "I'm studying the New Saint Joseph Baltimore Catechism in school." In Lesson 5, it states that Adam and Eve were the first man and first woman, and that they were the first parents of the whole human race. How is that possible? Did Eve have girls too and more boys? If so, did they then marry each other? And I will mention that we did talk about this back in the January 16th episode in 2019. So this has been quite a while since we talked about it, but you went into a lot more detail about evolution, Adam and Eve, and so people can check that out again, January 16th, 2019. But wondered if you have a, a short summary for wow. Lillian. Yeah, we have talked about this whole issue of monogenism and polygenism. Uh-huh. And it's a very, I mean, this is really a lot about science and religion. You know, some people think that polygenism, the idea that there was more than an original couple at the beginning, is incompatible with Christianity. And there are others who say that there is a compatibility. It depends on how you interpret the book of Genesis and the creation of man and woman. The uh, the church has no problem with the uh, evolution of the human race. There is a lot of scientists say that there's the evidence that we have from genomics is that uh, all humans would not have descended from an you know one couple that there's too much genetic diversity among human beings that that wouldn't be possible hmm. uh, so there's there's that there are excellent catholic theologians who are wrestling with how if that is true how how our faith would look at that I mean, we do believe that at some point along the process of evolution that the human soul was imparted or instilled by God in a, a couple, and that, that at some point 
they became, they, they were given this rational soul that was created. The question is then, did they have any kind of relations with these non-human primates? I mean, there's a lot of questions here. The, the question of the interbreeding, were these merely biologically human neighbors, but not truly human because they didn't have souls? But I think I would say that the creation of rational souls for each of the descendants of that original couple would be a matter of faith. You know, so anyhow, this is this is really in depth and we did talk about it on another mm -hmm. show. I hope I did answer the question, but when you read the famous encyclical by Pope Pius Twelfth, Humani Generis, did not make a definitive statement about the incompa incompatibility of polygenism, which is, again, a numerous first humans rather than a single couple and the traditional understanding of original sin. He just said, Pius XII said in that encyclical, it's by no means clear how the two could be reconciled. So um, very interesting, a few months ago, I think this, and I can't wait to read more about this. Reese, they opened up the archives from the pontificate of Pope Pius Twelfth. I don't know if you saw that in the news. Yeah. A lot of it is, you know, a lot of interest in what he did or did not do during World War II. Right. I haven't seen anything in the news, but there's also in the archives the documents in drawing up the encyclical Humani Generis. Huh. So in... Like rough drafts or something? Yes, or? and then huh. some of the discussions that were going on, okay. you know, about what to put in it and what to not put in it. What I have heard is that the initial study of those archival documents related to Humani Generis, that non-definitive language, Pius Twelfth deliberately chose over the stronger, because the earlier drafts had stronger language mm -hmm. and it got softened. So it's not definitive that polygenism is necessarily incompatible with our faith. So anyhow, that's, uh, the church has to look at this more. I mean, that's the work of theologians. I mean, I'm very interested in this. You know, the Society of Catholic Scientists is looking at this. I'm not a scientist, but I still find this very fascinating. And uh, so, yeah. So can I try to summarize maybe a little bit and bring it down a notch? Yeah. That how Adam and Eve reproduced, it, there's several different possible scientific biological possibilities. We don't know exactly how that might have happened. But when the St. The new St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism says that Adam and Eve were the first man and first woman, that they were the first parents of the whole human race. What does that mean for us on a spiritual level, besides the scientific? Well, the main issue thing. has to do with, with the, the transmission of original sin. Okay. Okay, because our first parents, we know that there was original sin, you know, and that is transmitted to every human being. Uh, every human person who descends from the original, what we call our first parents mm -hmm. or first group of parents. That's where polygenism comes mm -hmm. in. Okay. So that's like, that's where theologians are wrestling with how, how that relates 
to what is being discovered in science. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it also imply the infusion of a soul, like the first humans with a soul and that descendants from them have souls and right. descendants from other animals did not? Right. But the question is, the, the monogenism, monogenism, polygenism question is, was it just one couple mm-hmm. or was it more? And because of the science of genomics, there is evidence that, or some evidence, some strong evidence, I think most scientists would say that there was more than one couple. So then, now, but that's not proven by science. Okay. But now, I, you know, so the thing is, you know, where are we stand on this? Well, it's a question of science. Mm-hmm. You know, and science hasn't really come up with a definitive answer, but that's the strong evidence they have at this point. So then do Adam Adam and Eve then become representatives, like symbolic? Yeah, I would say- Of a generation? Yeah. Depends on what you understand by symbolic. I mean, there was a real point Uh in evolution where God imparted the soul. In other words, where these primates had the capacity through their brain, et cetera, to have a relationship with God, Mm. where they had self-consciousness, the ability to reflect and self-reflect, and the ability to enter into relationship with their creator. I mean, what is it to be human? Those are the things. There's rationality, there's free will, there's the ability to enter into communion. So all those are aspects of having a rational soul. All right. It's pretty deep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel okay. like we could go for another hour on this. Uh, we, maybe a few lighter questions here. Somebody asked, where will Bishop be buried? <laughs> And I know in a previous episode, you mentioned Archbishop Noel. I think you said he was buried in Huntington? Yes. Uh, so I don't know where other past bishops have been buried. Well, um, Bishop Pursley is in Catholic Cemetery. Okay. Archbishop Noel is at the Cemetery of Victory Noel. Bishop McManus is at a cemetery where he was from in Chicago. Okay. The others are all buried under in our cathedral, in the crypt of the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in, hmm. in Fort Wayne, including Bishop Darcy. Okay. And there's one spot left under there, so maybe I'll be buried there, or maybe I'll be buried at Catholic Cemetery in Fort Wayne, which is so beautiful. I, I don't know. I haven't decided. I get, I better put it in my will, but uh, because I, I've just not been able to decide. But it'd be one of those two? Probably, yeah. That'd okay. be most likely one of those two. Yeah. All right. Finally, someone asked... What is your favorite Bible translation, or is there one you recommend? Well, I would name two. One is the translation that we use, the Revised New American Bible that we use at, at, in the liturgy. It's very clear. It's a very good translation from the original Hebrew and Greek. And that's the uh, N-A-B-R-E? Yes, yes, and the other, N-A-B-R-E. And the other is the Revised Standard Version, the new, newly revised, the the new revised standard version. NRSV. NRSV, which I think is actually, from, I'd say from my reading, it, uh, 
seems to be more exact in certain places. Okay. Uh, maybe a little bit better English. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little more. A little. Yeah, probably be my 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 main preference. But I like both of them very much. All right. So main preference NRSV. But if you want to be able to follow along at mass, you probably want the NABRE. Correct. Okay. I'm glad you use the initials. That helps. Well, that's what's on the spine of them too. Uh, yeah, so if you're yeah, looking at the yeah. bookstore, that's yeah. what you want to look for. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit faster. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> for me to remember the New American Bible Revised Edition or the New Revised Standard Version, being the two you recommend. All right. Well, thank you again. If anybody has a question for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. Also, all of our past episodes are there or in any podcast app or the Redeemer Radio app. So many different ways that you can find the show. Share it with your friends. We post these on social media. So if you just go to the Redeemer Radio page, you can you just share what we've already posted if you'd like. And if you have any questions, you can also text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Very good. Listen to episodes anytime by searching for Truth and Charity on your favorite podcast app. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a new one. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.